Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Days after Huawei launched its new 5G smartphone Mate 60 Pro without fanfare but with much success, what more do we know? What does it say about the effectiveness of U.S. sanctions? And as Asian Games are set to start in Hangzhou, Eastern China, my exclusive interview with Thomas Konieczko, president of the International Canoe Federation. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Huawei staged a comeback. On August the 29th, China's tech giant Huawei released its latest 5G smartphone Mate 60 Pro without advanced publicity but with huge success. The device is powered by a Chinese-made cutting-edge 7-nanometer chip called Kirin 9000S, despite strict U.S. export controls on advanced semiconductors to China. It can also be used as a satellite phone. The company has long been scrutinized for posing a so-called threat to U.S. national security. And in May 2019, it was put on the U.S. entities list, preventing U.S. companies from doing business with the company. Now, Huawei, was it was a huge setback for the company. But four years later, Huawei seems not only to have survived, but is thriving. How did the company make it? How far is China for being self-sufficient in high-end semiconductors? And what new tricks could the U.S. be conceiving to hold down Huawei and other foreign companies whose only crime may be their excellence? I'm pleased to be joined here in the studio by Professor Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel, and from Bangkok, Thailand, by Jeffrey Towson, partner of the Tech Mode Consulting. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So exactly, um, how has Huawei, or why has Huawei shocked the world, Professor Gong? Well, I think because uh, of the phone's chip, um, you know, let's put it this way, I, would, I wouldn't even call it a uh, seven nanometer chip. I would say it's a, a chip that is uh, comparable uh, in capacity, in capability, and performance to a seven nanometer chip. Um, because we can all you know, talk about debatable the definition of what that really means. But at the end of the day, it's a phone that really functions. It's selling very well. The, the U.S. government is investigating into this. I think if you look at the Jake Sullivan's statement, um, it's still uh, trying to find out where is that manufacturing capacity capabilities coming from. Uh, there have been several theories being proposed. One is that the chip, of course, is uh, possibly you know, one of the, the inventories Huawei has built up before the sanctions uh, is being uh, imposed. The second theory is that Huawei is putting up a assembly line itself using second-hand equipment. It's actually a very active um, second-hand semiconductor equipment. Uh, but there's some you know, debate over whether you can do this for a chip like this, for making a chip like this. And the third theory is regarding you know, whether SMIC is violating any you know, sanction rules uh, that's being reached upon between a company and the United States government. I think at this time, the uh, U.S. government still hasn't got an answer yet, so I think it's still investigating. How I much think is known here in China, though, about these chips? I mean, who exactly made it? With what technology have they made it? And what is the I, breakthrough? I, I don't have a definite answer yet. I think we're still waiting for a definitive answer. Maybe, maybe we never know. You know and why? Should we know? I, th I think you know. As long as this phone is being so sold well, as long as people, consumers are buying it, and as long as it's made in China, we know it's made in China. Of course, um, you know who cares? It's 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 good for the company. Uh, it's good for China as well. 
Jeffrey, what's your take on exactly what's significant about this new phone? I think the first thing everyone concludes is symbolically it matters. I mean, this is a chip that works at a high level much faster than everyone thought this was going to happen, right? People talk five years from now, well, 2023. Um, I think the business question here is, okay, can they make such chips at scale cost effectively? Was this some sort of workaround? Did they spend kind of a lot of money that's you know really not viable uh, economically to make a certain number? Or can they actually make effectively seven nanometer chips at you know not efficient scale, but enough to be viable products in the market at scale? Now, if they've done that, uh, yeah, that changes the market. Uh, I think that's kind of question number one, and we don't quite know how they're doing it yet. Hmm. Well, uh, the, the fact is they've done it and they had the guts to release it uh, despite the, you know, the, all the baton, the terrifying sanctions that the U.S. has put out there. Um, and the phone was released quietly, quietly, without advanced publicity during U.S. Commerce Secretary uh, Gina uh, Raimondo's visit to China. And that was the first such visit in five years by U.S. Commerce Secretary John. What's the symbolism here? I I think it's a coincidence. I don't think Huawei has the intention to deliberately snub in the face of uh, uh, Gina Raimondo. Uh, I think um, you know Huawei wants to keep this a low profile. It doesn't want to antagonize the United States government. It doesn't want more sanctions. Uh, certainly doesn't want to cause any trouble for uh, possibly for uh, SMIC. We don't know you know the real story yet. So so I don't think um, you know Huawei is doing this to to show a uh, to make a particular political point here. Um, at the end of the day, you know Huawei is a company. Uh, it's for for profit company operation. Um, and, and I think Huawei's uh, corporate culture uh, is very unique, famous for its being very resilient, um, you know, its surviving mode, its, its tenacious uh, nature, its, its fierce competition. You know, it, it, this company is a great company. I mean, you think about, you know, what is, a, what is Huawei uh, trying to fight against? It's the whole of government of the United States, you know, including 16 intelligence organizations, the State Department, the Commerce Department, you know, all kinds of organizations, you know, several uh, district attorneys uh, in several states are filing suits against the company. So, you know, in other words, I mean, the, the whole America is fighting against this company, and yet this company still survives, not only survives, it thrives. So uh, this is a great story for corporate America, of, for Jeffrey, corporate China, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, Jeffrey, what's your take on this? Because Ren Zhenfei, uh, the founder of Huawei, seems undeterred um, before and after the company was put on their entities list. He said, and that sentence impressed me, he said, we're not alone. Our friends are all over the world. And when this, he said this after the company was put on the entity list, just as what John has said, basically the company um, was standing up to the state power of the most advanced country in the world. Do you think the company has survived, has managed? Yeah, uh, let me disagree a little bit. I mean, this is not the U.S. This is not the U.S. This is the U.S. government. Who is? I mean, the American public has no opinion on any of this. And in fact, a lot of these American companies like NVIDIA, they want to sell to China. Absolutely, they do. So this is really coming from the government uh, for various reasons. Uh, No, I was at the Huawei headquarters back in 2019 when the first entity list ban hit. And, uh, you know, Chairman Longhua talked about this. And what I like about Huawei, 
mm. is I don't think they they're very direct. They talk like engineers. Mm. They were very honest about, yeah, this is a major deal for us in chips and operating systems, and we are fighting for our survival. I mean, that's it was very direct language. Mm. So the whole coincidence with the timing, I don't I don't think they operate that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they've been talking openly. We're fighting for survival, and they've kind of used this to reinvigorate their culture. They've really battened down the hatches. You're talking about 200,000 people, most of whom are engineers. <laughs> so, yeah, they're. Uh, I think they're five years ahead of everybody if this is what we think it is. They've mm. really kind of shocked people with how fast mm. well, they've turned this around. It definitely caught the U.S. by surprise, the U.S. government by surprise. But uh, U.S. Secretary of Commerce uh, Raimondo told uh, media that uh, what we will not compromise on is preventing the sale of our most sophisticated, most powerful semiconductors to China in response to Huawei or after Huawei rolled out the new phone. So, is, John, is the U.S. in a dilemma it created itself? On the one hand, the sanctions seem to clearly not have worked, but on the other hand, they won't admit it has failed. Sure, absolutely. Uh, let me first say I do mean by the U.S. government, actually. You know, of course, you know, Jeffrey is right. Uh, now, regarding uh, your question, Liu Xin, um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, State Department is, at, I'm sorry, the Jake Sullivan, the uh, National Security Advisor, is under immense pressure. If you look at the financials of the recently um, released financials from the major semiconductor companies, you know, uh, including uh, Qualcomm, Intel, they are all in big trouble. I mean, as a matter of fact, these companies are laying off people. Um, so there's a lot of question about whether this strategy, uh, so-called small yard high fence strategy, is going to be effective in ultimately slowing down China's semiconductor business. Um, it, it's hurting American companies, and let's face it, it, it you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, and I think you know, the dilemma is that uh, it's not only hurting American business, it's not going to slow down China's technological advancement in semiconductors. On the contrary, it actually provides more impetus for developing even more indigenous technologies even faster and better. So, so I think um, you know, this strategy is very much in doubt, even in Washington. Um, so, uh, but uh, let me say in the short run, Jake Sullivan is not going to admit a defeat here. Uh, he's going to double down uh, and he's going to stick to his policy. So, uh, you know, this is a dilemma that the uh, uh, United States government is in and uh, it's going to continue this way for some time in my view. Well, specifically, <coughs> National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said at a, at a press conference in reaction to this question that he would withhold comment until he got more information about precisely Huawei's new phone's character and composition while insisting the U.S.'s small yard, so-called small yard, high fence strategy will continue. Well, my problem with such kind of response is that, Jeffrey, in the first place, how can the U.S. decide what it can do to a foreign company based on suspicion, without public evidence, without substantiated evidence that a company is involved in what wrongdoing. It just slaps sanctions on a company that it deems to be a threat, and that's it. And then, you know, the U.S. is God. I decide when I lift the sanctions which are wrong in the first place, which are, you know, illegitimate in the first place. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I am an American citizen, so I'll talk, you know, I'll criticize more openly. This is something we haven't seen before. This is the U.S. government attempting to politically weaponize uh, the technology supply chain, not just saying, hey, you're an American company, you can't do this. They're telling 
foreign companies what they can do with other foreign companies. Well, we haven't really seen that before. And I think it, give it credit, it was effective tactically in the short term. It was a big move. Strategically in the long term, they have convinced every company in the world do not have a single source supplier for critical technology because that is now a risk. You can look at it in the annual reports of almost every tech company in the US, outside of the US, they cite this as a risk. Single source of critical technology, especially out of the US, is a risk. So literally the United States, uh, by wanting to de-risk de with China, made itself a risk to companies that are in the chip making or whichever, even the, you know, the uh, cutting edge uh, EUV producer, ASML in the Netherlands, they are stuck. They, you know, they can't sell these machines to China, but uh, who are they going to sell to if China produces its own EV, EUV machines, John? You're absolutely right. Um, you know, Jeffrey used the word convince. I think it might be used the words of convince when it comes to American companies, but when it to a company like AMSL, it's clearly coercion to me. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's just a coercion, you know, forcing other companies outside the United States, foreign companies, not to do business with China in certain products, certain technologies. Um, and these companies are not stupid in my view. I mean, they, they're sitting back and look at the huge losses of revenues for companies like AMSL. And, um, you know, and they're also concerned that uh, China is developing rapidly to come up products that are closing the gap or even you know comparable to their own products. So uh, um, I think they're trying to find ways. As a matter of fact, we've seen we have observed that uh, you know, MSL is trying to come up ways of uh, 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 circumvent uh, a policy from Washington. Um, you know, in, in a sense, you know, trying to sell other products mm. that can deliver the same capability. Yeah. Well, well, the problem is for, for for the next foreseeable future, either out of humiliation or desperation or whatsoever, is the picture going to look nicer for companies such as Huawei from the United States? I mean, there are already congressmen saying, "Okay, Huawei violated U.S. sanctions. We're going to do something about." It. Jeffrey, what do you foresee coming next now that Huawei has proved it didn't die, it will not die? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict what happens out of political circles. I'm not in those circles. I think it's easier to predict what companies will do. Every major company in China, in Asia, in South Korea, in a lot of countries is convinced you cannot be dependent on U.S. for a single source critical technology because they will use it. We've seen it. Now, it's really hard to exert this sort of geopolitical power on the supply side. Ultimately, if there's a whole lot of people who want to buy semiconductors, someone's going to sell them to them. You know, it's, it's very short term as a move, but yeah, we're seeing massive investment in alternative supply chains that aren't exposed to this sort of action. Yeah. And well, uh, these are not just regular companies. These are the smartest companies in the world that are doing this. Okay. So good luck with that. <laughs> good luck with that. Well, the, the Chinese company is not alone, I guess. Many thanks to Professor John Gon and Jeffrey Towson for joining this edition of uh, The Point. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, my exclusive interview with the president of the International Canoe Federation, Thomas Koniesko, as the Asian Games come up. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point.
The 19th Asian Games will take place in Hangzhou, the capital of East China's Zhejiang province, later this month. Chinese traditional dragon boat racing will be held during the Games in a place known as the Land of Fish and Rice and under the category of canoe and kayak. What does this mean for China and what implications does it hold for the sport? I was pleased to be joined from Lausanne, Switzerland, by Thomas Koniesko, president of the International Canoe Federation. I started by asking him to assess the development of canoeing and kayaking within China. Oh, China is standing on top of all national federations. At least China is among the best uh, federations in the world. We have 171 federations and all Asian uh, federation made a lot of progress during the last decade, especially China with the three medals in Tokyo. And since years, there is an improvement in, in strength of Chinese paddlers. And I expect that Chinese paddlers will compete with in all disciplines for medals in the Asian Games. Well, help us understand exactly what's the charm of canoe and kayak events. What makes it exciting and that's something the Chinese would love to participate more in? Uh, China is a country of water. So, and that's why water sport is very popular. And the pinnacle of all water sport activities is a high performance water sport. So it's exciting. Uh, we have really good athletes who are in and out of the boats are persons which are important. And, and I think uh, the beauty and the diversity of our sport makes our sport so special. What do you think um, made it possible for China to be able to make progress, make some rapid progress, as you mentioned, in international canoe and kayak events, given that it, you know, it, China has its own canoe and kayak events. Let's think of, you know, I'm talking about the dragon boat race, but canoe and kayak as it's known internationally was still something quite new. So what has driven China's progress over the past few decades? I can only congratulate Chinese Canoe Federation for its progress, not only since the uh, Olympics in Tokyo. Has the Chinese Canoe Federation proven its strengths and has become one of the strongest Canoe Federation? As I said this before, in many of our disciplines. Why? This is a difficult question. Maybe I can answer in a very simply way because they did a great job, all the officials, all the coaches, to improve the strengths uh, and performance of Chinese athletes. It's hard work and China did hard work. Well, the, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, Asian Games is coming up, are coming up in Hangzhou. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the hardware. Uh, you visited the venues in Hangzhou in March for the canoe events. I understand canoe slalom and canoe sprint. How would you gauge the readiness of the events and what are you expecting to come out of the races? Yes, I was in Hangzhou in March and I was able to see for myself the uh, breathtaking scenery of venues uh, equipped with uh, complete facilities. And I could learn more about, about the professional preparation of Hangzhou organizers. So I'm more than confident that we will experience great competitions, exciting competitions, 
on one of the best venues I have ever seen in the world. And Hangzhou is definitely one of the best venues. In terms of software, you know, the kind of readiness in servers, in the judging parts, I don't know, in all the technical parts, except from the, the uh, hardware aspect, uh, what is your sense of uh, what um, may unfold for the athletes from around the world during the games? So we don't have to talk about hardware because Hangzhou has the best possible hardware on the world available as equipment on the course, but uh, human resources are very important to make for athletes a special experience. And I could learn that each of organizers who is involved in preparation want uh, from the bottom of his heart that this competition becomes a success. And I, I think that will realize our athletes as well, and they will enjoy the atmosphere in Hangzhou. Now, um, we talk about Dragon Boat. I have to make it clear that uh, Dragon Boat traditionally was a Chinese uh, watercraft paddling activity for more than 2,000 years. So uh, why does it fit in with the culture of the ICF? And what sets it into the same category of canoe and kayak instead of rowing in or other sports? Help us understand that better. Um, we don't, uh, we know very well that Dragon Boat has started this triumphal march around the world from China. In the meantime, many of our 175 national federations now organize Dragon Boat races around the world and bring Chinese culture closer to the people around the world. And, and I think you know it better than I, Dragon Boat is more than a sport, it's a way of life and therefore uh, Dragon Boat Sport is the best ambassador for China's culture. In the meantime, uh, it becomes also a part of our ICF culture because it's simply a great sport. Uh, ICF World Cup in the frame of the Chinese uh, Dragon Boat Festival in the city of Xigui, county of Yichang City. Okay. And we had thousands of uh, teams from around the world and thousands of spectators watch this race. So it's a unique experience to organize Dragon Boat races in China. Do you think the Dragon Boat race will be embraced by people in other countries and other nations? I mean, uh, is that a unique Chinese thing? Uh, are there similar sports in other parts of the world that, you know, can uh, fall into the similar category? I think um, we cannot compare Dragon Boat with any of our other disciplines because Dragon Boat is so special and um, many uh, countries in the world, many kind of federations learned how important Dragon Boat paddling together, this special spirit is for kids, adults to, to do sport. It's not only about high performance sport, it's simply also about recreational sport and I think this special spirit makes Dragon Boat so unique and it's very difficult for me to compare it with other sports, but you can nowhere in our other disciplines experience this special atmosphere. Mm, it's the only group canoe and kayak sport, would you say, that's available at this moment in, in terms of a race? No, no, we have another, this, uh, we have another federation, we are working closely together and uh, 
this federation will organize uh, races in um, Asian champion uh, Asian Games in September, and we will organize the biggest event in the world, 2025 in Chengdu in the World Games. So there are many people who are working to make uh, Dragon Ball still more popular. I see. Okay, um, Dragon Ball at this moment is not yet an Olympic sport. It's uh, listed as a um, Asian Games sport in 2010, and at Tokyo Olympic Games in 2021, it was still a demonstration sport. So, um, can we expect Dragon Ball to be eventually listed as an Olympic sport? What is your opinion of the of the eventual prospect? I think it was a milestone to have Dragon Ball as a demonstration sport in Tokyo during our Olympic events, and we had a lot of dignities, athletes, who presented unfortunately only to other athletes because of the COVID situation, this great sport. And I think we could attract some of the IUC members who joined this uh, demonstration event. But of course, we have to fight together to promote our sport, to make sports still better. But I already had talks with uh, Chinese authorities and I promise that ICF and Chinese and other federations will work together to convince the International Olympic Committee to consider one day Dragon Ball as an Olympic sport. At the same time, uh, my understanding is that more and more Chinese people are also interested, are also into canoe and kayak in the sense that's known to people outside of China. And China has lots of rivers and lakes. So what's your expectation of canoe and kayak events being as popular in China in the near future as in some other parts of the world, aside from Dragon Boat? Uh, you know, almost everyone has already contacted his life with canoe. Uh, maybe uh, during a vacation, using a canoe for recreational activities. So you can do canoeing almost everywhere in the world. So far you have water. And that's why canoe in general is popular. And we have to use this popularity to make our Olympic discipline still more popular. And therefore we need competitions, especially competitions outside Europe. And in the past, uh, unfortunately, most of our big competitions took place in Europe and uh, the new leadership and uh, myself, we want to change the situation. And we really appreciated, for example, application from Hangzhou for our ICF Super Cup next year. So we want to bring more competitions to continents outside Europe and Asia and especially China with uh, strength to organize big competitions is one of the best places in Asia to make our sports still more popular. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Thomas Koniesko, President of the International Canoe Federation, joining us from Lausanne, Switzerland. Thank you, Christine. And that's it for this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. You've got the point.